So it's really important to think about how politics can be reconnected between the local level, the national level, and the European level. And I think this is really the heart of the matter if one wants to address the causes of populism in Europe, is re-exploring those linkages. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Alexis Holowinski and I am joined by my co-host Nicole Rivas. Recent years have seen the long-standing model of cooperation within Europe repeatedly challenged in response to many factors, including the Syrian refugee crisis, Brexit, and most recently, the coronavirus pandemic. At the same time, populist parties have gained momentum everywhere in Europe, from Hungary and Poland to Italy and France. So what exactly is populism? What shape has it taken in some of these European countries? And what does it tell us about the future of European cooperation and integration? In order to explain the dynamics of populism in Europe, joining us today is Dr. Rosa Balfour. Rosa Balfour is the director of Carnegie Europe. Her fields of expertise include European politics and institutions, as well as foreign and security policy. Her current research focuses on the relationship between domestic politics and Europe's global role, and she has published widely on issues relating to European politics. Previously, Balfour has been a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund and the director of the Europe in the World program at the European Policy Center. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Rosa, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me. Now, to get us started, could you first explain what exactly is populism? Well, it's, uh, it's good to start with the basics because... Um, the very different views as to what um, populism is and what it actually is about. Um, some say it's it's a um, it's a new style in politics, um, and you know if if we applied that that definition, then these days um, most politicians um, would appear as populists. Um, others, such as Ernesto Laclau, um, they see populism more as a, a process of self identification as a people, a sort of consciousness um, building uh, process. Um, what I found very useful is Cass Mudder's um, definition. Um, it, it's, it's broad enough uh, to embrace a wide variety of, of uh, populist phenomena, but it's also um, got some um, definitions that give it clarity. And basically, um, populism is a manifestation of the so-called people, which are usually um, you know, represented by a charismatic leader versus the other, versus another group that is constructed as morally inferior against which the people need to fight. Um, and this other group can be a different, of different nature. It can be foreigners. It can be uh, people of color. It can be um, elites, it can be Wall Street, it can be the European Union bureaucrats. Um, and in this way, it can embrace both the right-wing um, populism, especially if it contains nativist elements, but also left-wing uh, populism if it contains more um, um, economic uh, complaints. Um, there also is what uh, Jan Werner Muller calls a moralistic imagination in politics. Um, so it's, it, it, it contains some kind of messianic struggle um, between 
the people and the other. And this is perhaps the dynamic that most uh, that that best represents um, populism. There are a couple of additional elements that I think um, ought to be brought in. I mean, the first is that populism contains a strong anti-dimension. It's that, you know, the people versus the other means that there is an anti-dimension. It can be anti-system, anti-elite, anti-foreigner, as I mentioned. Um, And this can bring contestation in politics, which can also be healthy. It can be anti-status quo. It can bring about uh, change. And then the other dimension is this majoritarian dimension. Because of this a firm identification of the people as being right, as having the moral authority to make decisions. These the people are basically, you know, half the population plus one. And um, there's a strong anti-pluralist streak um, in populism. And if that majoritarian vocation becomes dominant, that's when, in my view, populism begins to slide into authoritarianism. And I think in Europe, in some countries, that's where we are, that populism has um, has slided into authoritarianism. Now, um, having given us that working definition, and I know you touched on this a little, but could you explain any broad differences that exist between left and right wing populism? Yes. So um, the, the, the nature of the other is uh, very much um, the defining feature of a left uh, populist party or a right wing populist party. So the left will have a stronger um, anti-elite um, or perception of an elite uh, that is morally corrupt, um, that is uh, probably making money at the expense of the welfare of the people. Whereas to the right, the other is most likely to be other communities, um, immigrants, uh, um, uh, or people seen as other communities, uh, immigrants or people of colour or people of different uh, religious um, convictions, and um, the foreigner generally. So in the first case, it will produce policies that are seeking to um, reconsider you know, the, the economic relations within a society. In the second case, it will seek to pursue policies that tend to be anti-foreigner or anti or xenophobic or anti a certain group. And these are sentiments that can be very easily mobilized um, through political opportunism. Um, and in many respects, um, these agendas, and that's why I think Kasmuda's definition is useful because it's quite a broad tent. This is Populists tend to be ideologically quite thin, as he says, and they can shift from one issue to another, which means that you have right-wing populists such as Marine Le Pen in France, who has very successfully exploited um, grievances in traditionally left, um, left-wing voting areas of the working classes. So she's, trans- she's exploited economic uh, grievances and turned them into far-right um, populism. And this has happened quite a lot. Another case, for instance, is in Italy, um, the League, which was born as the Northern League back in the 1990s, when the political, the Italian political and party system collapsed. Um, it emerged first as a regional uh, protest um, group, but gradually became um, a right-wing populist populist 
uh, group. But in the meantime, it attracted a lot of votes from traditionally left uh, voting uh, citizens. And that's why the, the thin definition ideologically is quite useful, because you can see those shifts. Having said all this, I do want like I would like to um, add a further consideration, and that is that in my view, right-wing populism has been far more successful in influencing the debate than left-wing populism. So we've seen far less um, uh, of the, the sort of mainstream political spectrum shifting towards the left in the past um, 20 years or so. This hasn't really happened, whereas we have seen a shift towards uh, right-wing populism. So I think even now, even on the left, there's a very um, relaxed use of um, you know left-wing pop of using of labeling politicians as left-wing uh, populists not all of them are populists uh. Jeremy Corbyn isn't really a populist he's just fairly le- he's just pretty left-wing um, whereas we have seen other left populist groups for instance Podemos in Spain and Syriza in Greece who've actually Podemos is in a coalition government and Syriza was in government um, and eventually they drifted a, a little bit away from their anti, um, uh, uh, anti-mandate um, to be a little bit socialised into the system. So, you know, we, these, these are shifting concepts. Um, they, 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 um, they, 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 they're still useful to distinguish between left and right, uh, but populist parties have also been um, uh, pretty good at muddying the waters as to where they stand on the left-right spectrum. Right, and um, we, um, we're we going to talk about some specific examples later. But in general, I, I wanted to ask what forces have contributed to populism's rise in Europe since the 1980s? So in short, why populism? Yeah, so the the, the two classic explanations for the rise of populism, one is about economics and the other is about identity. On the economics front, it's very much tied to analyses of globalization um, and how globalization has impacted our societies, impoverished some, disempowered some, the left behind, etc. Um, and this is certainly a powerful argument, and it also explains why um, populism did so well uh, throughout the um, financial and economic crisis of the 2010s, for instance. Um, the other explanation is more about identity and, um, and um, the again, as a consequence of globalization, people feel their identity is at risk, that their cultures are being threatened by the arrival of immigrants. Um, and this, this explains, again, the, the rise in nativism, in, in nationalism, um, uh, again, during the 2010s and before, of course. Um, however, if you then go and contrast these or test these theories with um, empirical evidence, there isn't necessarily um, that much correlation. You see that in countries that have had that have had a strong, um, um, uh, difficult economic periods, no populist party has actually emerged. I'm thinking of Portugal or or Ireland again during the 2010s. They were badly hit by austerity, but populist parties did not um, come out of there. Um, similarly, other countries um, have not, you know, who ha- might have experienced massive immigration waves have not necessarily developed uh, populist parties. So there's, 
there's a bit of a patchwork in terms of evidence supporting this. Um, so while I don't want to disregard these um, explanations, because of course they play in, um, they are part of the explanation. Um, and of course, populist parties use those arguments very much to mobilize support. But I would also like to argue that um, this that populism has risen at a time in which democracies, as we built them after the Second World War, were being eroded by several um, factors. Um, the factors um, are about the lack of upgrading and reforming our democratic systems to make them more inclusive. Um, the factors include the uh, transformation of the classic class system that emerged after the Second World War in Europe, um, where uh, certain classes tended to vote for certain parties and felt represented by certain parties. Um, all the, 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 the political party system uh, that um, um, uh, evolved uh, pretty much unchallenged with political elites um, very much um, uh, regenerating themselves through co-optation and not through diversification. So these, these are um, many of the reasons for which uh, democracies have been eroded internally. And of course, in Europe, the process of European integration has also taken away the decision-making powers from citizens and away also from nation states and shifted some of those powers and responsibilities towards the European Union, um, which was driven for many years in a rather technocratic fashion um, with the governments that were making decisions, but they were pretending it was Brussels making the decisions. So citizens felt increasingly at a distance from where the decision-making powers were. So, you know, call it globalization, call it a steady erosion of democracy that is actually monitored by um, several um, international observation centers on the state of democracy. And I think this is where populism um, can kick in easily. People feel that they have been trampled upon, that their voices are not heard, that they, they have been disempowered um, politically, not just economically and not just culturally. It's also about choice and about being able to shape the political system and political decisions. You know, with the rise of populism also comes a decline in, in political participation in elections. So the, 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 it's, so it's, it's bigger. Basically, what I'm saying is the rise of populism comes about as a phenomenon that is broader than simply the impact of globalization on the economy or the arrival of, or, or the increase in immigration. It's broader than that. Um, and it really um, affects the quality of our democracies. Right. And I was wondering, how has the coronavirus pandemic, and, and maybe this is a separate question too, but the Ukraine invasion also, how, have that, how has that impacted the appeal of populism in Europe? Um, and maybe how has it shaped the future of populism in Europe? Yeah, no, these are very good questions because, you know, if, if my reasoning about populism being um, caused by the erosion of democracy in in uh, certainly in advanced democracies, um, uh, then it follows that 
in order to address populism, one needs to address the cause, you know, the, the reasons for which democracies are eroding. And then, you know, comes along COVID and then comes along the war um, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, that many have been arguing, well, this is the end of populism because there are much more urgent matters that need to be uh, dealt with. And I've been saying, well, you know, maybe temporarily, um, but actually, you know, until we address the fact that um, democracies need reform, need upgrading, uh, need to think differently about inclusivity and decision making, um, until this is done, then populism will remain um, a, a force, um, even if temporarily, perhaps, um, on the sidelines. Now, with COVID, we saw that at the beginning, populism performed very, very badly. Populist governments performed very, very badly. Um, think of Trump, think, think of Bolsonaro and the number of victims to COVID in, in, in the US and in, in Brazil. Um, and we also saw, after a first few weeks of chaos um, and chaotic responses and national instincts prevailing over international cooperation, we actually saw that European Union managed to get its act together. And, you know, the country that was most affected in the first weeks and months of COVID was Italy, and it was led by a populist um, prime minister who did actually manage to rise to the challenge and and, and um, uh, keep order and, and, um, and uh, address um, the, the, you know, the, the health uh, challenge uh, for several, for several uh, months. But then we did also see, uh, you know, a few, a few months into the COVID pandemic, uh, that populism, populism was exploiting um, the discontent with the lockdowns, the discontent with um, the restrictions on freedoms uh, in several ways. And we saw, you know, quite a few um, uh, street uh, contestations of, of um, government measures to control the pandemic in several countries. And these brought together a very odd collection of left-wing um, uh, left-wing uh, protesters, uh, far-right protesters, but also libertarians, and it was a very odd mix. Um, and I think, you know, th- these these groups um, of people can be mobilised again for other issues. Um, you know, when 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 that sentiment comes about, and and when populist parties see it useful to contest uh, their governments. Um, with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, I think similarly we're seeing populist parties being temporarily sidelined. We saw in the French presidential elections that uh, Marine Le Pen, who ultimately did um, go to the second round against Ma- uh, Emmanuel Macron and, and lost, she distanced herself from Putin whereas her uh, um, another of the candidates, um, uh, Zimur, uh, did not. And ultimately, uh, their positioning vis-a-vis Putin did not really change their uh, fortune in the election. And so I think other populist leaders in Europe are taking note um, and, uh, you know, perhaps being quiet now, but uh, depending on the continuation of this war, they might pop up again 
um, with a similar um, pro-Russian or pro-Putin agenda, which is what many of these uh, populist leaders that I've been referring to um, had. So um, I would say, you know, watch that space. None of this is going away because we haven't addressed the root causes of um, a populism. And even though at the moment we, well, for the past two years, uh, we've been weathering major crises and therefore there is less of an appetite perhaps for contestation, but that will come back um, when the situation um, lends itself to a return of populism. So next, we were hoping to focus in on a few specific examples of all of these concepts you've been explaining for us. Um, And we first wanted to turn our attention to Hungary, as the country's populist party, Fidesz, has retained power there since 2010, outstripping all of the other modern populist parties in Europe. So could you identify some of the characteristics of populism in Hungary and discuss what populism in Hungary means for the rest of Europe? Yeah, so Hungary really is a thorn in 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 the side of Europe. Um, regardless of the populist origins of Fidesz, I think uh, its leader Viktor Orban early on crossed a threshold, um, and you know the, that it is a case in which populism really morphed into authoritarianism. Um, this started early on. Uh, already 2013, I think, but uh, the rest of the European Union wasn't paying attention. Um, And Orban has been systematically stripping the country of its democratic institutions, um, of its free media, of any opposition, has been using EU funding to, um, uh, to, to support himself in power and also to, to buy in a, a network um, of individuals um, who can keep him there. And, um, and this is no longer about populism. This is really about authoritarianism. And the other uh, clue to the fact that this is no longer authoritarianism is that the fact that actually of all the populist leaders, he is the only one who has articulated a vision um, and, and an ideology. And his, um, his ideology, he calls it one of illiberal democracy. Um, but it's, it's essentially majoritarian, you know, just being, being kind, I could say it's majoritarian democracy taken to the extreme. Um, it's no longer that. Maybe back in 2014, that would have been a kind definition. It's no longer that because the opposition doesn't have any space um, to voice their views. And in addition to um, uh, this liberal democracy, it has a very strong, patriarchal, ultra-conservative, very religious streak, um, which is an, a, and very much um, patriarchal in the sense of you know masculine-driven. So Orban has been silencing. Uh, women's issues, for instance, um, closing down all the gender studies departments in um, in, hung- in Hungarian universities, um, has been um, uh, stifling uh, academic uh, freedom, has been uh, stifling any voices f- uh, from the opposition and from television and, and media. And um, this is what 
um, you know, this is no longer populism. This is authoritarianism. Um, and indeed, Hungary has been downgraded. It's no longer defined um, by um, by the economists uh, or by other, uh, you know, watchdogs of democracies. It's no longer defined as a, as a um, democracy. And the second element of this um, ideologically charged view, which, you know, populism is ideologically thin, whereas uh, Orban has an, has an ideology that he's pursuing. Um, a second element is to undermine the European Union. And what um, Orban has been uh, carrying out quite successfully, and, you know, we've just come out of a European Union special summit to agree upon uh, an oil embargo towards Russia. And these talks have been going on for, for weeks and Hungary has been able to block um, the union in moving forward on its uh, wartime objectives um, um, because it is committed to undermining the EU's ability to find unity on foreign policy matters. And this is this has two dimensions. The first is that Hungary is, on many issues, quite aligned with Putin. Uh, ideologically, they're quite... Um, they're quite um, close. Um, it appears that they're also uh, quite close personally. Um, of course, Hungary is also a member of NATO, uh, so it has to tread a, a thin line between, you know, doing Putin several favours and um, uh, and being a member of uh, NATO. But in the EU, it manages to cause quite a lot of trouble and can be, I think, described as a Trojan horse. Um, for Russia. And finally, again, another ideological, it's not, it's not just the, the, um, the convergence between Putin's views um, of, you know, moral views of the world, again, uh, patriarchal, conservative, religious, um, male-dominated. Um, so there's, there's that convergence. Uh, but the other point about uh, European Union integration is that Hungary views the EU as a single market and as a source of funding and nothing else. It refuses the checks and balances that uh, being a member of the EU entails. And not only does he refuse them, but also tries to undermine them. Um, and, that's, and that's the consequence of having uh, a country that was uh, with a leader that was elected on a populist platform, which morphed into an increasingly authoritarian uh, government and um, disrupts um, one of uh, the world's most um, unique um, experiments in regional integration. Right. And um, we want to ask about um, how populism relates to um, European integration a little later. But first, we want to look at another case study, so to speak. Italy, you've already mentioned briefly, but um, the level of support for populists in Italy is unparalleled among other Western European democracies. So could you tell us why that might be? Yeah, interest, it, Italy is a very interesting case because it's... it's um, so let's not forget, in the 1980s, populism grew very much in the Scandinavian countries, in the Netherlands. In, um, but Italy really pioneered a lot of... Um, uh, populism, lots of forms and shapes of populism back in the 1990s. 
And I have already mentioned the, the, the Northern League, which is now called the League. Uh, but of course, the other and the Taurus example was the rise of Silvio Berlusconi um, in uh, 1994. And, um, you know, I consider him the predecessor of, of Donald Trump. And why did this happen? Um, the, I mean, Italy went through an extraordinary political earthquake following the end of the Cold War, in which the whole party system collapsed. Uh, none of the parties that existed then exist today. Um, some have morphed into something else, um, but there are so many new um, political parties. And they have governed um, in the 1990s, in the 2000s, and in the 2010s as well. Um, and, you know, there's been an alternation of uh, populist governments, technocratic governments, and occasionally political governments, but actually not that frequently. And, uh, I mean, political governments, including uh, mainstream political parties, without the populist parties. Um, so it's been quite extraordinary how... Italy has actually held it together and has not um, collapsed. I mean, to, to, you know, having said this, Italy is the only country in the European Union that has had negative growth for the past 20 years. So it can't be said that it's been doing very well. Um, but it actually hasn't morphed into an authoritarian state, as has happened um, in Hungary. And that's um, possibly due to the fact that even if the political system imploded um, because of the end of the Cold War and because of the whole um, corrupt system that governs the um, the the the, um, the whole post-war um, uh, Italian political uh, system. Because, of, but, but despite that, maybe the institutional um, setup has actually managed to contain a lot of the damage. The institutional setup is, of course, the constitution, um, the president of the Italian Republic, the various checks and balances between executive, legislative and uh, judicial power, and then the strength of, um, of, of the European Union um, and the fact that for most of its history, um, Italy has been quite pro-European, I have to say, in the past three decades Together with the rise of populism, it has also become um, much more um, anti-European or Eurosceptic, um, but not to the extent that it might make the choice that Britain uh, made. Made so it's it's um, it's a fascinating landscape for sure. A lot of the populisms that we have seen across the world, even um, over the past three decades, um, were pioneered by several. Um, uh, Italian populist movements and um, yeah but it's quite significant that they haven't actually brought they've made the country hard to govern but they haven't actually made the country implode or uh, transform into a non-democratic uh, state. Finally to close us out um, given this rise of populism and its impact on key international issues including immigration trade and the European Union we wanted to know what this might tell us about the future of European integration. So do you think populism in Europe can stand with the sometimes opposing pillar that is integration and cooperation in Europe? Yeah, thank you for this question, because it, um, I think 
this is something that the European Union elite really needs to address. Now, the European Union tends to be something populists go against, um, and and it's 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 one of the tends to be one of the other. And I don't think, in and of itself, the European Union is a cause of populism. But what goes between needs to be looked at. And if you go back to what I was saying about populism being a result of eroding democracy, the process of European integration does need to be held responsible for this because we've had a growing um, a shifting of powers away from national centres to European centres with a degree of accountability accompanying that um, but again, on a bit of a distant level, we have the European Parliament, but it can hardly be said that the European Parliament and that European Parliament, uh, that European members of Parliament are seen by European citizens as their representatives. Politics continues to be somewhat local, but a lot of the big decisions are being taken at, at, at another level um, because the nature um, of the challenges that um, that we are looking at today require that level of international cooperation. So it's really important to think about how politics can be reconnected between the local level, the national level, and the European level. And I think this is really the heart of the matter if one wants to address the causes of populism in Europe, is re-exploring those linkages and uh, discovering ways in which democratic practices um, can be carried out in a different way. Because, you know, the nature of the challenge, war, peace, pandemics, climate change, uh, the technological revolution, these are not things that can be handled by small states, uh, let alone by the people um, against some other um, um, uh, morally inferior group. These need to be handled by competence, by foresight, by international cooperation. And, um, and, and so it's critical to look at how one can have uh, you know, avant-garde policymaking that is at the same time uh, connecting uh, with uh, citizens that is that is inclusive of um, local politics and their instances and challenges that is accountable and transparent. So it's really that relationship I think that needs to be looked at if one wants to rethink how uh, politics can 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 work. And I I talk about Europe because this is. Europe is what I know, but of course there are other states out there where they have, you know, maybe not not the same setups, but similar setups where you really need to make the connection between the local, the regional, the state, and the broader uh, region um, in which these countries are placed. So, so you know, even if in in Europe there's, you know, from a procedural point of view, there are a lot of things that can be looked at. Um, there's, in Europe, there's just been this conference on the future of Europe, which brought together citizens looking at what can be reformed um, to improve the institutions. Um, even if other continents don't have these types of experiences or, or institutions, but I think the key question about how to 
how to marry um, uh, a, a, a demand for um, people's empowerment with the need to deal with these big uh, global trends effectively. How to do it, I think, is a question for us all. Thank you once again, Rosa, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.